you have a Bible and you'd like to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 22. We'll read the whole chapter. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offering as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Uz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Chazo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gacham, Tachash, and Macha. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
You can turn into the New Testament to Matthew 3. We'll read chapters 3, verses 13 through 17. Lend your attention. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. Uh, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a treasure it is to have your word. And so we ask your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of your word. Prepare our hearts as good soil to receive this seed of the word, Lord, that we might yield a crop as the Holy Spirit brings forth life. Do these things for you alone can, and we delight that you are pleased to do these things. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Why are you doing that? My kids ask me that a lot. Daddy, why are you putting that turkey in a bag? More seriously, Daddy, why are you going to the hospital? As children, we were often confused in the face of our parents' actions. Children, have you ever asked your parents that? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? As parents, we're confronted with those questions, and we're forced to evaluate what sort of answer is appropriate. Sometimes we give them full answers, sometimes partial answers. Sometimes they understand, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes they don't understand at all. It's striking to see that we very much occupy the same position as our children when it comes to the things of God. Very often times we're left wondering, why, why are you doing this? What are you doing here? I, I don't understand. Sometimes we get a little understanding. Sometimes none at all. For the Christian, the danger is always making our understanding the extent of our trust. Does that make sense? We're always tempted to make our understanding the extent of our trust. To the degree that we understand we're willing to trust, but no further. It's one thing to seek understanding. It's another thing altogether to make your understanding the measure of all things. John didn't understand what Jesus was doing. <laughs> The early church really wrestled with this question. It seems strange to us. It's not as pressing to us, but they felt it acutely. 
what is Jesus doing here? Why would he be baptized by John, who preached a baptism for repentance, who openly acknowledged that Jesus was greater than he was? Why would a lesser need to be baptized by, why would a greater need to be baptized by a lesser? One of the early church fathers asks, what in fact is the nature of this baptism with which the Lord was baptized? What did it amount to? The baptism of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who for the sake of our salvation became human. Maybe you've never thought about it. It's an odd scene. The Lord of glory, the sinless one, the Lamb of God, entering into a baptism of repentance by one who declared openly that he wasn't worthy to hold his sandal, let alone administer baptism to him. The scene has some answers, but not all. But it's striking that all of the answers are a great comfort unto us. For here we behold the beloved son, the ram, who stands in the stead of sons to bring them unto God. And so let's ask, why does Jesus get baptized here? And what comfort is it to us? Well, we can ask and then answer in the negative first. In fact, the first two answers are negative. Why does Jesus get baptized? He does not get baptized because he has sin. John vigorously attempts to stop him. A better translation of verse 14 might be, John was doing his best to stop Jesus from getting baptized. It's a repeated and intense action. This isn't, no, you can't do this. This is a sincere and partially correct attempt to stop Jesus from entering into a baptism of repentance. You can see why John would conclude this. He knew why he was baptizing the people, because they had strayed, they had wandered. His was a preparatory act. His was an act of retrieving. His was an act of cleansing sinners to bring them back. But this wasn't necessary for Jesus, so he tries to stop them. No, you don't need to do this. This isn't for you. And he was partially right. The lamb without spot and blemish had no need to be cleansed. The Lord Jesus Christ was conceived in holiness from the very first. He was a product of the Holy Spirit, conceived mysteriously in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit attended him from the womb all throughout his early life. His early life was marked by the plain obedience of righteous Joseph, such that even as an infant, Jesus is obeying in the capacity that he was in. There's no sin here. There's no stain to remove. John Chrysostom writes, John did not want anyone to draw the conclusion that Jesus himself came to the Jordan to repent of his sins. So he sets the point straight from the outset by calling him Lamb and Redeemer. For he who is able to take away the sins of the world is himself without sin. 
we confess our sin. We see ourselves in the masses coming out to John in the Jordan, acknowledging we have gone astray. We have befouled ourselves with our selfish desires. We shamefully find sin all too near at hand, anger, greed, lust. We baptize that sin, justifying ourselves. We have need for cleansing. And we can enter into that wholeheartedly, without any qualifications, with an eye to the sinless one. With an eye to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. For he came for this very reason. To save us from our sins as the sinless one. I hope that testimony to you, sinner, is of some encouragement. We have all been stained by sin. Perhaps you're feeling it acutely as time with family tends to bring out the worst of us sometimes. You fresh off of a Thanksgiving feast. We see in Christ the lone, sinless one. We see in Christ the spotless lamb sent forth to take away sin. There's great encouragement as we identify ourselves as sinners and Christ as the sinless one who came for this very purpose. Christ did not need to get baptized because he had sin. Nor did he get baptized because John is greater than he. This is the second negative response. John does, Jesus does not get baptized because John is greater. John has made this abundantly plain. Verse 11, there is one who is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to hold his sandals. He will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. John is either intentionally or unintentionally identifying Christ in a remarkable position because the one who's going to baptize with the Spirit is none less than God himself. Who's going to pour his Spirit out from on high? Go read Joel. It's a little prophet nobody reads. <laughs> Go read Ezekiel. It's a bigger prophet nobody reads. <laughs> The one who's going to baptize in the Spirit is God. John is saying, not to be compared to this one, either in my person or my work. And John makes the same objection here. He says, I myself have need to be baptized by you, and you would come to me? Let's stop there for a second. If John has need to be baptized, you have need to be baptized. Because there were none greater among those born of woman. If the greatest man born of natural stock has need to be baptized, you have need to be baptized. You are not greater than John by a natural consideration. You are much worse than John. But rejoice because there is a Savior who came to shed his blood for John and for you. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. John would prevent him because he knows he's lesser. John is the friend of the bridegroom. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a best man try to upstage a bridegroom. It's unseemly. (laughs) It's unsightly. It's grotesque. The focus belongs upon the bridegroom and the bride for the friend to intrude, for the friend to put himself forward is ugly. For a servant to raise up over a king is ugly. The king is dishonored and the servant is defiled. In the return of the king, Mary shows his true worth as he takes his place beside Theoden, king, offering his sword to him, rejoicing simply to be found in the court of such a good king. And in this way, both king and servant are honored. John instructs us plainly in this matter, he must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. We must decrease. Hear that as an antidote for this relentless refrain that comes forth from your heart and my heart that thinks we are the greatest thing and we must increase so that many may see our glory. To the degree that we increase is the degree to which others die. For our glory kills. To become a herald of your own glory is undoubtedly to plunge your tiny kingdom into ruin. For you do not possess a glory that's worth heralding. But there is one who does possess a glory that's worth heralding. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is greater than all. John tells us plainly in this odd exchange, strangely, Perplexingly, the greater is baptized by the much, much lesser. Jesus did not receive John's baptism because John is greater. Quite to the contrary. So why does he get baptized? First, to set apart the waters of our baptism. Our Lord gives baptism to the church in a similar way that he gives them the Lord's Supper. By an act of participation, intimate participation. In Matthew 26, Jesus takes the bread, Jesus takes the wine, and he gives it to his disciples. If you can believe it, he does the same thing to this day. He's just pleased to use servants to do his purpose. He does the same thing here with the waters. He takes the waters onto himself and then gives them to the church to practice in perpetuity until the end of the age. That's how he closes this gospel. Go forth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This gift that Christ takes first unto himself, he turns and then gives for the life of his church. Luther declares, Almighty, eternal God, through the baptism of his dear child, our Lord Jesus Christ has consecrated and set apart the waters as a salutary flood and a rich and full washing away of sins. Do you look at your baptism as a choice gift? as an excellent gift to be received from the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our king gave us this gift. 
Our king was pleased to demarcate his kingdom by this gift. For this gift joins the recipient to the king and to the king's kingdom. Yes, the kingdom is greater than the church, but it's not less than the church, nor are you going to find it outside of the church. The Westminster divines were in the exact same line as Cyprian when Cyprian said, no one may have God as their father who does not have the church as their mother. If that makes you cringe, you get a glimpse into the intensity with which you've dishonored your mother. We find our place in that stream or we die. <laughs> because that is the faith once for all handed down from Christ to the apostles to this very day. We take up this gift from his hand and find ourselves in this cleansing stream. J.C. Ryle exhorts us in the right direction. The admission of every new member into the visible church whether young or grown up, is an event which ought to excite a lively interest in the Christian assembly. And it is an event which ought to call forth fervent prayers from all of God's people. How wonderful is God's providence that we get to celebrate a baptism today. And here we find ourselves face to face with our Lord, consecrating the baptismal waters. The Lord's going to add another member to this visible body. For baptism is that sign and seal of entrance into the body of Christ. Pastor Gibson, in his lectures a few weeks ago on Reformed liturgy, pointed out that in the Reformed churches, the architecture of the churches was set up such that the baptismal font was actually at the entrance to the church. The waters were at the entryway. And the whole congregation would turn and watch and then welcome with open arms as God ushered another member in. They would receive the little one just as our Lord received the little ones. But we can also mark that this is a commencing sacrament. Today we welcome a little one into the church and as a body we commence praying for that little one. Are you praying for the children of this congregation? You aren't. Not as you ought. You ought to be praying for them as if they were your own children. For we are a family. And this is the household of God. You ought to be praying for them regularly. That in God's mercy, he would grant the little ones the light of faith. That in God's kindness, the old Adam would be drowned by their baptismal waters. That the adoption and the cleansing signed and sealed unto our little ones would be realized in them. That the newness of life in Christ would be brought to pass by the Holy Spirit who hovers over the sacramental waters. Pray for them. Pray for them. We administer this sign and seal today as Christ instructs us and we commit to praying for the little one upon whom God places his name, that all of the blessings and benefits signed and sealed unto him in his baptism would be realized in the Lord's good timing by the only one who can realize them, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Our baptism is God's gift to us as he assures us and reassures us of the truth of the great promise in Matthew 28. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And that's the second reason the Lord Jesus receives baptism, to go to his people, to rescue them from their sinful plight. From the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we meet this remarkable king, David's greater son, the greater Solomon, who is not ashamed to call sinners brothers. From the very beginning, we see that not only is the wonder of this king that he is sinless, but that his excellency is on display and that as the righteous one, he has come to save sinners. His name shall be Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Luther marvels. He comes to us. Without a doubt, you do not come to him and bring him to you. He is too high. He is too far from you. With all your effort, work, and labor, you cannot come to him. No, dear friend. Before you come to God and seek him, God must come to you and must have found you. Isn't this what we see in the bewildering act of the incarnation? God become man? And it only continues to grow in a wonder because it's not just God become man. It's God become man to go to sinners to retrieve them from their helpless plight. The image here is striking. It's the Lord Jesus Christ as the sinless one entering willingly into sin-infested waters. For the people had been baptized of their sins, and there they remained like filth. And Jesus Christ, the spotless one, says, I am not ashamed to call them brothers. And he plunges into the muck. He plunges into the filth for this very reason he has come. Not to call the righteous, but to save sinners, to save you and to save me. If John was right from one angle that Jesus had no need to be baptized for he had no sins, he was wrong from another in that Jesus tells us plainly, he says, I've come for this very reason to retrieve sinners. And that means I must go to them in their sin. For how else shall they be saved? Everyone tried to stop Aragorn from traveling the path of the dead. It was certain death. Theoden King, Aomer, Eowyn, all who loved him, you cannot enter these death caverns. You're too good. You're too important. We have no hope if you die. But the true king did not shrink back from the dreadful road. He went beneath the awful mountain. And in so doing, as only he could, he brought peace to the tormented oathbreakers. If Christ doesn't go to sinners, beloved, we are lost. For none would go to him of their own accord. 
Christ here sets on display what he's going to demonstrate in full as he doesn't just go to the sinful waters, but he goes to the cross to bear your sin and mine. The waters were a foretaste of the dreadful judgment that he would willingly take to himself as he's pleased to stand in the stead of sinners to bring them out of sin and into light. And that brings us very close to our third reason why Jesus is baptized. And it's the reason that heaven confirms with its yes and amen. He baptized, he's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus says plainly. This is how he prevails upon a confused John. He tells him, let it be now for such as fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let's pause for one moment and marvel at John's modesty. Calvin points this out, and I think it's worth noting. John was so confused. John didn't understand at all. It must have seemed absurd to him. And yet he submits. He clearly doesn't have the fullness of understanding that he would desire, and yet he yields to his Lord as a true servant. The Lord grant us all such a servant's posture. No? Are you quick to submit? Are you quick to bow your will to the will of God, either in Scripture or in Providence? I suspect you're much like me. I am much more comfortable making my own understanding the limit of my trust and obedience. We're dreadfully guilty in this regard. Difficulty befalls us, and we do not respond in trust because we don't understand. How could you be doing this? How could you let this happen? Our understanding or lack thereof becomes the occasion to grumble, to complain, to rise up. Sometimes it's just we just don't like something. I don't like it. Decisions are made in the church. Legitimate decisions are made in the church by those who have the authority to make them. And what happens? I don't like this. I don't understand this. So I'll just go find a different church. Shame on you. Shame on us that we have that in us. John here imbibes that heart. Let him increase, let me decrease. Let his will be done, let my will die. Even if I don't understand, because he's good. And he freely gives good to his servants. John yields to his Lord, though he doesn't understand. <laughs> Jesus prevails upon him by saying it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is righteousness? In Matthew, righteousness is wholehearted obedience to God's commands. The one who is righteous is the one who obeys God's requirements from the heart. Jesus tells John, I must be baptized. I have traveled these 70 miles from Galilee to this Jordan River for this specific purpose, to yield myself in obedience to my heavenly Father. 
his will be done. After this, he's going to go into the wilderness, and this very obedience is going to be put to the test. This is the first step in a direction of testing that question. Is he the son of God? Is he the true son of God? Not just the object of heaven's love and delight, but the one who yields back to him filial love and obedience, filial trust and adoration. Jesus says, Adam failed. Israel failed. My good father, David, failed. I've come not to fail. I've come to obey where all have disobeyed, to save my brothers from the curse of the law and the righteous judgment that hangs over all oath breakers. Chrysostom marvels, Jesus is saying, in effect, I have come to do away with the curse that is appointed for the transgressors of the law. So I must first fulfill it. And having delivered you from its condemnation, bring it to an end. This is the very purpose of my assuming flesh and coming to you. All that the law requires, both its perfect demand of moral obedience and its judicial curses against the transgressors, Jesus brings to completion in himself as he fulfills all righteousness to save his family. Consider the excellency of this king. Consider the humility and the meekness necessary for this high king of heaven to submit himself to the law. He subjects himself to the law and therein shows a humility unsurpassed. And that's what heaven confirms, that indeed this is a king like no other in whom heaven delights like it has delighted in no other. So we can close by considering the testimony of the father and of the spirit to the son. Heaven's response comes in verses 16 and 17. I'm going to mark three distinct features of heaven's response as it declares the Lord Jesus Christ as most excellent. And each one of them is of great encouragement to us. First, heaven is opened. Verse 16, and the heavens were opened to him. Heaven is closed to sinners. Who shall dwell on the Lord's holy hill? Not sinners. The glorious and life-giving dwelling place of God, the place of his throne, the fountain from which the waters of life gush forth, this way is closed to man. Heaven is like that dreadful iron sky threatened as a curse. In Deuteronomy, it yields nothing. Only it's actually worse, because not only is it closed, it's guarded by a flaming sword and creatures of heaven who cannot be overthrown. But heaven is open to Jesus. Heaven is not closed to him as true man. And if it's opened to one of us, that brings hope to all of us. For by our sin, heaven is rightfully closed. But because of his righteousness, it is rightfully and justly open to him. 
The reason Jesus Christ can come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven is because it is uniquely open to him and all those who come to him. Sinner, make no mistake, if you stand outside of Christ, heaven is closed to you. You will be forced to stand before a judge who will plainly declare guilty away. But it is the day of favor. It is the day of heaven being open, declared in the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one who opens heaven. None can come to the Father except through me. I am the way. It's open. Rejoice and come to Christ. To whom heaven's choicest favor has been openly declared. We see that second in that the spirit descends upon Christ in the likeness of a dove. Verse 16, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. We ought not to see this as the first moment that our Lord was clothed in the spirit. The spirit uniquely attends him from his womb, from the womb, from his birth, his earliest age. Rather, this is a public manifestation and attestation to our Lord's unique position and unique possession of the Holy Spirit. What he enjoyed in private up till now begins to take a much more public face. We can see this as heaven's encouragement to her champion. I don't think we think readily of Christ as true man, but he was. True God, true man. And as true man, he was often in need of encouragement. The angels came and ministered to him in Matthew 4. You think of the dark night in Gethsemane. The angels are there ministering to him. Here, heaven encourages him with this visible display that says, I am the one equipping you for this remarkable task. You will be tested. You will go through the very heart of the crucible, but I am with you, declares heaven as this visible symbol, this visible figure of the dove clothes Christ in heaven's power to undertake heaven's mission. Heaven retrieves sinners, beloved. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit retrieves sinners, beloved. Your salvation does not rest simply in the excellence of the Son, but in the wonders of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can also see in the particular figure of the Spirit the most excellent encouragements to come to this King. Who in their right mind would come to a king? Think about all of the unseemly approaches to the king that we see in Matthew's gospel. They didn't go through the court necessities of approaching a king. It was this raw, unseemly, uncomfortable, awkward, son of David, have mercy on me. Who would presume to approach a king that way? That's what the apostles thought. Get, get these guys out of here, quiet. 
Quiet, quiet, don't let the kids come. It's unseemly. But he's not a king like our kings. He's better in every way. And here he's clothed, not in an eagle, not in a lion. He's clothed in a dove, gentle, lowly. Those wings beating gently over the creation waters. Now beckoning to sinners. Come to me. Come to me. I'm a king like no other. I give rest. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Calvin writes, in this symbol, we have an eminent token of the sweetest consolation that we may not fear to approach Christ who meets us, not in the formidable power of the Spirit, but clothed with gentle and lovely grace. And for this reason, the Father loves him, because he lays down his life for the sheep. And that's how it ends. The Father declares his delight in the Son, verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Once more, I marvel at God's providence as we read Genesis 22. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him unto me. Go to the dreadful mountain and make him a burnt offering. Here the father says, it's my son. It's the unique object of my delight. I'm the one who will provide a worthy and sufficient substitute for sinners. The one whom I have sent forth to do my will and to retrieve the lost. Because the other Old Testament text behind this is Isaiah 42, where God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. If the Father has declared that he is well pleased in the Son, not only does this resound to this King's glory as the unique object of heaven's delight, but it resounds to the consolation of sinners who know that in and of themselves they are the object of the Father's wrath. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are objects of the Father's unparalleled good pleasure. Beloved, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, this word that the Father here pronounces in a spectacle is most true of Christ but is also for you. For he declares that he is pleased in you, that you are the object of his delight, for you share most intimately in the beloved Son. And for those who do not know Christ, you're going to spend your life trying to gain the pleasure of heaven, and you can't. The only way to be found as the unqualified pleasure of heaven is to be found in the beloved Son. Come to Him. Flee to Him. 
Cast yourself upon him as a sinner because he came to save sinners and he will not turn aside any who come to him. Thus says the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May God's name be praised. Join me in prayer. Mm-hmm. Almighty God, how rich your gifts. Humble us anew at the magnitude of mercy that you are pleased to pour out upon the ruined and the lost. Keep us from our dreadful pride. Position us aright at the feet of the true King, Lord. Sanctify us by your word. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.